I just didn't want to stand out. I didn't want people to pity me. And so I kind of created my own problems because if I had accepted it, I, I think other people would have accepted it as well. But instead, because I was fighting it so much, no one knew how to act around me. And so that actually shoved me into that dark place even more because I wasn't embracing it and sort of figuring out a pathway. Ultimately, you have to sort of say, okay, blindness is a part of my life. And sometimes even your adversities, your greatest challenge becomes your greatest fuel and uh, your most powerful narrative, that anger. Once I learned to channel it into a kind of fuel, it did turn out to be a strength that drove me to the top of so many mountains and so many rivers and so many massive challenges. And there were plenty of naysayers that said, like especially on Everest, I was going to draw everyone into a huge disaster, a big rescue that I shouldn't be on the mountain. I heard it all. But here's the thing, though. I started assembling my team and we were out climbing all the time together. So the people that climbed with me, they were totally psyched. It was just the people that didn't know me and didn't know much about blindness. And they projected their own idea of blindness onto me, meaning like they were thinking, if I couldn't see, I can't imagine doing Mount Everest. So it must be the same for him. They were just seeing the one thing, which is the giant thing, blindness. With the National Geographic, you were actually alongside Will Smith. We had a good time and he just became one of my climbing partners while we were there for that week. Will grew up in Philadelphia. He didn't get a chance to learn how to swim and learn how to camp and learn how to climb. Like, I was really fortunate to be able to do that stuff. He played these action heroes in the big screen, but in, in his real life, he said I was pretty timid. He had a tough childhood, and just like all of us, even though he's on the big screen, he's still trying to work out his shit like the rest of us. Welcome to Out of Adventuring, the show about explorers and inspiring adventurers and the details behind their incredible journeys. They not only take us through their hardships and highlights, but also let us know what they have learned on these trips that has changed them and their everyday life. Hi, I'm Torben from the World Explorers Collective, and today with me is Eric Weinmeier, an extraordinary athlete and explorer. Eric climbed Mount Everest, and he climbed the tallest mountain on each continent, the Seven Summits. And on top of being an avid climber, he also kayaked down one of the most dangerous rivers in the world, the Grand Canyon. And all of these things sound pretty spectacular in themselves, but the absolutely crazy and unbelievable thing is, Eric is blind. He climbed Mount Everest and he kayaked down one of the hardest rivers in the world, not seeing a thing. Eric had to learn to break through tremendous barriers, to build trust and friendships who helped him along the way. Because as a climber, you need to have a partner. And Eric trusts his partners and his partner trusts him. And that is an absolutely fundamental recipe for his success. In this incredible episode, we will talk about this partnership and what it is to be a blind person on top of the mountains and how to kayak when you're blind. Because Eric, he listens to nature. He feels nature. He says he sees in a different way. We will talk about technology that Eric uses to actually see with his tongue. He can see footholds when climbing and he can see balls in front of him despite him being blind. We will talk about his greatest 
inspiration who showed him how to break through barriers. And we also talk about his phenomenal organization that he built, No Barriers, a worldwide movement that has helped thousands. And we will also talk about Will Smith, the action hero and actor. Because with National Geographic, Eric went to the South Pacific with Will Smith to climb a volcano and then climb into that volcano. He got to spend many days with the actor who had to face harsh realities far from a movie set. For Eric, blindness has been an obstacle as much as it has been the fuel that pushed him to do these extraordinary things. But he had to learn how to break through these barriers because Eric wasn't always blind. He never had good eyesight, but he could see until he was 15. And that was the day when it suddenly became dark. I was born what's called legally blind, which is like, it's some technical term from a normal person would look at somebody from 200 feet and I would be, I would have to look at them at 20 feet to have that equivalent vision. Mm. So meaning I couldn't see that well. I was almost blind in my left eye. I went to a series of doctor visits and nobody knew what was going on. And finally mm. we went to a retinal specialist in Boston and they said, hey, there's no cure for this disease called retinoschisis and your retinas will unravel over time and you'll be blind by an early teenager. And what that meant to me when I was a little kid, four or five years old being diagnosed, I mean, I just thought, wow, the way these adults talked about it, talked about going blind, it was like what I imagined dying would feel like. Like, well, wow. I'm going to, something bad is happening in the distant future. <laughs> and yeah. so I kind of ignored it. I, honestly, I just tried to be a kid. I was like, most kids just live in the present. And so I'd try to ride motorcycles, like with my friends and run through the woods and tried to play baseball. I was always a kid, like 10 feet behind running into trees and falling into holes. But I was trying my best just to be part of the group because I, I my biggest fear was being left out of things. They call yeah. it FOMO disease, fear of missing out. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, when I went blind a week before my freshman year in high school, it was devastating because it was all real. Like I honestly had blocked it out in my mind. The brain's amazing, right? Especially my mind in terms of just, if I don't want to deal with something, I just go into absolute denial. And so when it actually hit and I couldn't take a step, I was like, wow, I cannot take a step. I can't see well enough to walk three feet. And it was just like getting hit in the head with a baseball bat. Like, wow, it's real. This is real. And everything in my life has changed. So it was pretty much until that point when you said you ignored it that Maybe you have, you had this Navite as a kid hoping that, ah, maybe it doesn't come. Maybe the adults are wrong and this sort of the adults around you try to prepare you to what's happening or just yeah, let you be a of kid. Of course they like, did. <laughs> they were really kind and tried to prepare me and I just wanted nothing to do with it. They tried to teach me Braille and tried to teach me how to use a cane. And I would, I was just not, I, I was really angry, I guess, but I wouldn't have admitted that at the time. But when my mom would say, hey, you're going to be blind and you have to learn to use a cane and here's a cane, I want you to hold it and start walking around with it. I was like, that is a, an admission that I am blind and I don't want to be blind. And so I can't use this cane. So I would like drop my canes down, sewer gratings mm -hmm. and, and l lose them. And my mom would always just 
get another cane and hand it to me and say, you, if you're going to go outside, you have to have this in your hand. And mm. so for me, the symbol of going blind was like somehow failure or something. So, and, and I just didn't want to stand out. I didn't want people to pity me. And so I kind of created my own problems because if I had accepted it with in some kind of way, I, I think other people would have accepted it as well. But instead, because I was so, I was fighting it so much, no one knew how to act around me. And so that actually shoved me into that dark place even more because I wasn't embracing it and sort of figuring out a pathway. But I do think everyone has to go through that. Maybe every normal, average, intelligence human being has to go through something like that kind of denial, that kind of fight mm -hmm. before you know you actually realize, okay, this is my reality, and I better accept it because, I mean, at first it wasn't like this epiphany, like I'm gonna accept it and climb Mount Everest someday. It was yeah. a reluctant acceptance of. Like, if I don't start using this cane, I'm going to fall down a set of stairs and bash my head open. And so I got to use this because I have no choice. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. How would you have liked people to react around you? So when that day then came that you had no other option, but obviously taking the cane and standing out of a crowd, what would you have liked people to do and how to react? I don't think people did anything wrong. Everyone was there trying to help me, but I was just going through this internal fight. So I had mm. this nice mobility instructor and she would, she was a little bit militant. She's like, take my arm and I'm going to guide you around. This was the first day of my freshman year in high school. Everyone's trying to make an impression, like to yeah. be kind of cool and, and popular. And I'm holding this lady's arm, walking around through the hallways And, and she's showing me where the classroom is and the bathrooms and hmm. the cafeteria. And for me, that was like just alarm bells going off in my brain, right? Because I just felt like this helpless loser. <laughs> you could feel the looks of all the other kids. Oh, you just around feel you, the right? looks. And yeah, even now, but eventually you get over it. But yeah, no, kids were mean for sure. I remember sitting in the cafeteria at a table by myself and just listening to all the excitement and laughter and joy passing me by that I wanted to be a part of and uh, and just hating the idea that I was like at this table. Yeah, but kids could be mean. Like they didn't know how to act around me. I remember I tapped my cane over towards their table one time and one of the kind of bullying kids, I, I even heard him. He looked at people and he must have put his finger up and said, shh, like, quiet and then i walked up to the table and they nobody said anything and i i was just like excuse me my language a bit like f these guys they're not my mm -hmm. real friends i guess but i again i was bringing it on myself because ultimately you have to sort of say okay blindness is a part of my life i'm comfortable yeah. with it it's like having brown hair or being tall or short And I'm going to find a place for it. Maybe not the most important thing in my life, but it's a significant part of my life. And if I can reflect that positivity, other people will reflect me like a mirror. But because yeah. I was so uncomfortable, no one knew how to act around me. So it was really like I was in this prison, partly because of blindness, but partly because of my own reaction to it. 
because you had such a hard time accepting it and being confident in that this is now yeah. a new reality. Yeah, yeah. obviously. Also. And we live in a kinder, gentler world today. So I meet a lot of blind kids who went blind in middle school and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, it was painful for them, but they don't have a stigma against blindness. They're like, why were you so angry and such a jerk? And I'm like, maybe it was a product of the 80s. People weren't as accepting. There weren't as many accommodations. We didn't look at the world in an inclusive way. You know what I mean? So any challenge that you had sort of, you tried to hide because you wanted to be just like everyone else. Now, when I, even as a teacher, I tried to teach my kids that like, your differences actually wind up becoming your strength, your power. And sometimes even your adversities, your greatest challenge becomes your greatest fuel and uh, your most powerful narrative of, of pride and so forth. But back when I went blind, I didn't know any of that. No, I mean, I, I think it was also very tough to convince a, a 15-year-old boy that being blind will actually become his fuel and will be the reason you are achieving tremendous and great things probably when you're 15 years old you don't really want to believe that you think well i just yeah no i i just want to not have that and i do think that it's a double-edged sword i'm as i get older i'm 55 now and i'm starting to really understand that your strengths are also your weaknesses and everything is a double-edged sword and so i will say that anger once i learned to channel it into a kind of fuel, it did turn out to be a strength that drove me mm. to the top of so many mountains and so many rivers and so many massive challenges. But you have to sort of take that raw stuff and channel it into something more positive. Yeah. And I was able to do that, but it's not like overnight. It, it's a long process. Oh, absolutely. And now I'm actually, as an older guy, I'm trying to I'm trying to keep the fuel without the aggressiveness. You know what I mean? Like I want to be a kinder, gentler, more human being and a dad and friend. Mm. And so, so now I'm almost trying to decouple the, those two things. All the, let's just call it fury that, that powered you to climb these mountains. You say, okay, maybe it's, I need to dial down on that one, on this crashing through whatever is in front of me and take a bit more gentle approach. Yeah, because if you're able to be discerning and have a kind of a nuance in your life, yeah, I can pour this fuel on when I need to, but I can mm. also in my regular life be a kinder, gentler human yeah. with my friends, with my relationships, with my family. Yeah, everyone, everyone can, hopefully. I mean, I guess yeah. I never have learned all the kindness that we can give. Yeah, no, but, for sure. So yeah, I'm a work in progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hey, we all are. Before we go into the achievements and some of the results of when you channeled your energy to breaking through these barriers, I have one more question and I hope that's okay if I ask that question, but is... I ask you away. O- you obviously, you haven't been blind all the time and in your book you've, and I cannot recite it because it's very beautiful written, but so you saw that now there's sort of this darkness that is ahead. Like, how is it for you? You've obviously seen things. Is it to some extent easier to have seen what it's like to see 
versus maybe people who are blind from birth. Does it help you knowing that how things look and that you yeah. have a visual identity of these elements? Yeah. I mean, they say it's better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all. Well, it's better to have seen and lost than to have never been able to see at all. Mm -hmm. People who are blind from birth, they adapt just fine. But I don't think they have a visual concept of the world. And as a blind person, sort of figuring out a spatial understanding of the world, it's kind of tricky. So yeah, I was fortunate to have sight as a younger kid so that I can create images in my mind. I'm a very visual thinker. Mm -hmm. So in my mind, I'm creating pictures all the time, but it's not, how do I explain this? My eyes are not the portal to those visual images anymore. My ears and my sense of smell and my sense of touch, those yeah. things give me information that then my brain, my visual cortex translates back into a visual image in my brain. So my brain is constantly seeing the world, but with different inputs. You were at, at some point you were testing this device or where we could actually see with a tongue. Uh, I thought that was extremely fascinating. Is that really a thing? Was it more bit of a test? How was it? You had a camera attached and then something tickled on yeah, your tongue? Yeah, it's exactly related to what we were just talking about. It's this idea of, of neuroplasticity. Hmm. And that is that when one thing breaks, the brain is so, or one thing gets damaged, the brain is so nimble in certain ways that it can create new pathways. Mm. And some of those are not even things that nature or genetics intended. So the idea behind the brain port that you're talking about this technology that it's, is that if the eyes don't work and you can figure out a new portal into the brain, then you can create images. And that is again with people who I think have been able to see. Or even people who never were able to see, at least they're getting some kind of spatial image. But it's a video camera that takes a video image, it's digital, and it gets translated through a little computer that I wear in my hand. And that translates, some kind of software translates it to this, these tactile images on my tongue. Like it's 500 vibrating pixels that, that create lines and shapes and things like that, that then my brain is reinterpreting back as vision. So like, I'll give you an example. The first time I used it, I was in this laboratory and the, the technician rolled a tennis ball across. It was a white tennis ball with a black tablecloth. And I actually felt the ball rolling from the back of my tongue towards the front of my tongue. And it was rolling a little bit right to left and that ball was getting bigger on my tongue and i reached out onto the table where i thought it might be and i caught the ball rolling and my hand just nailed it and i was like this is freaking crazy right because yeah. as a blind person i've never i haven't had eye hand-to-eye -eye coordination in a long time and so to be able to reach out into space to like grab a can of soda or a ball or a glass mm. as a blind person i have to take my hand and if there's a glass on the table i kind of scan my hand very gently across the table until my finger taps the glass no big deal but to be able to see that glass in space 
reach out and grab it. It's like amazing. And I think sighted people take that for granted. And so Brainport enables you to connect those dots again. I was able to play tic-tac-toe with my daughter and play stone, paper, scissors. You can see the difference between a a hand, open hand, a a fist, and scissors, finger scissors. I was able to read these cue cards so that I could teach my son how to read when he was little because it's a white cue cards with black letters. So I could read the the words with my tongue. Oh, you can actually read. So, yeah, it's hard to read. I mean, you can't read like a book. I mean, I would have to really practice, but these are like big words on a card. So it's pretty easy to distinguish what it was. So, for children, uh, so yeah, there were some awesome. really helpful things that the brain port enabled me to do. And then more subjective things, which was to see my kids' faces because the, the brain port takes note of contrast. So it's like light against dark against light and mm. distances, things in the foreground, things in the background. So like I can, I could see my kids' head and face and the shape of their ears and the little wow. indents where their eyes are and the little impression where their nose is and their mouth. And their lips and watching them smile, watching their lips curl up and a face turn into a smile. Like as a blind person, I really miss that, being able to see that those beautiful facial expressions. And so kind of brain port gave me just a bit of that mm. back, I guess. Do you wear it um, a lot or was it more of a testing face? I'm kind of lazy, so I don't use it enough. But yeah, whenever I use it, I'm amazed really fun but yeah i don't use it enough i probably haven't used it in months but it is a really helpful tool and if a kid was a lot younger and really started out like the way you attack reading okay you're going to use a brain port from the from an early age as a blind person i mean you would be able to take this technology way far than than i could as a 40 year old and now i make the slow swift to your expeditions which we will get to but have you brought this uh, brain pot outside as well. So because you're a climber and obviously when you climb, you need to know where you put your hand. And every time I'm at a climbing gym, I'm just barely reaching this hole. And then, okay, now I have to make this one move. Boom, I have it. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. as a blind person, obviously you, you don't know where that hold is. Like, how, how do you go about that? Like that, that's really the fascinating. When I read that you are really going rock climbing, how do you find the hold? Well, I scan my hand across the face in like a grid fashion and I just find what I need. And then I lock off and I get a high step and I scan my other hand across the face again till I find something. And it's a slower, more probably tedious process and maybe takes a little more power, but it gets the job done. And I've been able to climb huge rock faces all around the world. Mm. But when I use the brain port, One, I use it in the gym, in the climbing gym. If you can imagine, it's like maybe a blonde wall with darker holds. And so I could actually see the holds. I could reach up and grab them. What's weird, though, is that it's harder. It was harder in a way because it, my brain hadn't been doing that for a long time. You get used to your patterns. And so whenever you break a pattern, even though ultimately it would wind up being easier just to reach up and grab those holds, I found it really exhausting (laughs) and I did take it outside a few times Mm -hmm. to climb. I could see the carabiners. I could see the quick, I could see the pieces of gear in the rock. I could see the cracks. It was really a fun, fascinating experiment to be out there because 
like as the sun moved beside behind me move say from left to right mm. the shadows changed so like i would reach for a crack and it'd be the crack would actually be a foot to the left or even more because i was seeing the shadow not the mm. crack and so i it was really like a reintroduction to the way the visual w- world works another time i was standing at this place stance and i could see that like this shape of a human in front of me and it was moving around and I kept reaching out and there was nothing there. And I'm like, what the heck is that? And it turns out it was my own shadow that I was I seeing. It was so crazy. I'm like, wow, that's air. I'm seeing myself. So yeah, it's, it, wow. it was, it was fun to play with that uh, device. And I think there are amazing applications for it, uh, in, down the road. Yeah. Again, you need to rewire your brain to some extent, and all of a sudden you need to you know, incorporate almost the angle of the sun and understand that, okay, that could be my shadow, things you've, <laughs> you've never thought about yeah, before. Yeah, there's so much you have to know and learn when you're dealing in a visual world that I'd forgotten. So it was yeah. really kind of fun to go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Shadows, they move <laughs> across the rock when the sun is at a different angle. Now I get it. I'd totally forgotten that. Yeah. To, to stick with the climbing, obviously, that is a, a huge passion of yours and something that you started fairly early. And I think what's so telling about climbing is that obviously you can, well, you could technically do it alone, but I would say 99.9% of people do it with a partner. And like, how was it for you when obviously you at some point also really had your mind set on Everest, which we'll come to, that, that you then decide, okay, I can climb Everest. But in general, like, what does partnership mean for you? Because mm. obviously, yes, as I said, in climbing, we always work in duos or teams of three or four people when we go up mountains. But for you, it's even more important to have someone on your side to, to also support you. How, how was that in the beginning when you realized, yeah. okay, I need to go, I want to go up these mountains, but as much as I can do it, I need to also have partners that are able to yeah. support me in that. I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, like as a blind person, I mean, look, there are trails that I get out and run on my, behind my house. I have this Mesa and I'll go with my dog and I'll run on these trails because I know the trails and I can be independent. I can hike independently up there. But normally if like I'm in a foreign country, I want to have a partner in on Everest, but you need a good, strong team. I don't care mm. how hard of a climber you are as a blind person. If you don't have a strong team to support you on Everest, you're not going to make it. And, and so I was really lucky to have a strong team and I've been lucky to have strong teams throughout my life. And they've just honestly happened organically. Like when I was a teacher and I was a middle school teacher in Arizona, there was a substitute teacher, this guy named Sam. And we started talking about climbing. And he just said, Hey, let's get out and climb. I, I can, I can show you some of these cool rock faces out in the desert. And so we just started climbing. We were weekend warriors. And, and eventually Sam said, Hey, we should try something bigger. And I was like, what? And he said, how about Denali? I'm like, wow. Okay. That's a lot bigger <laughs> than a rock face in the desert. Anyway, but I got intrigued because I guess I'm gullible or something. <laughs> and we went around for like a year and a half training on the weekends. Mm-hmm climbing mountains. I don't think we summited one mountain 
but we learned a ton along the way. We went to the American Foundation for the Blind and we got an amazing sponsorship to climb Denali because they could use that as like kind of PR to promote the positive image of blindness. Mm. And uh, yeah, we summited uh, Denali on Helen Keller's, Keller's birthday that next year. But yeah, I've been super lucky to have good friends. I mean, I remember walking into the Arizona Mountaineering Club and thinking, oh boy, like nobody's going to want to climb with me. And I had people that were like, wow, this is really cool. I'll take you under my wing and I'll mentor you. And mm. so I had people showing me how to build anchors and lead climb. And I, I had very little resistance mm. to, to learning how to climb. I had great mentors. And I find that surprising because you think the typical story is going to go in there and people are like, no, you can't climb. And I say, yes, I can. No, I had people supporting me. And wow, yeah. I've always had that. And I'm so fortunate. And I've tried to diagnose why it's been like that for me. And a friend of mine says, climbing with you is fun because you have such great gratitude and joy and appreciation for what you're doing and for the people around you that it's just really motivating. And so I would say that's a good lesson for a young person trying to get into any endeavor. Just be grateful and, and be full of joy and appreciation for the people that want to lift you up. And mm. people will do that for you. And, and so just, I just went climbing for two days. We climbed this giant, I don't know, thousand foot ice face yesterday. Mm. And I have these two friends. They just invite me climbing all the time. And yeah, the, the guy has to walk in front of me and he jingles a bell. And he'll give me directions. Hey, watch this tree on your face. Hey, skirt around this rock. He'll tap the rock. On the ice, he'll say, okay, there's a lot of rock up there on the left. So you're going to have to traverse to the right here mm. and get more on that. You know what I mean? So they are helping me, but they seem happy to do that, to m make those accommodations. And we just enjoy being out together. And so I smack myself in the face sometimes and say, like, I can't believe people want to get out with a blind person. It's just, it makes me so happy to know that there are people like that out in the world that say, yeah, this is cool. Let's see how far we can take this partnership. And I've always been lucky to attract those kind of people. Well, first of all, I'm very happy to hear that. It's not one of those stories against all odds and no one wanted to do. And then I just did it by myself or anything like that. But I think one can, one could see why, especially in mountaineering where, you know, also your partner security depends on your ability to save them. That, yeah, that, that is yeah. something that you could just assume that there might be resistance. So I think it's even more great to hear. Well, that when you got to case. that level, yes, there was some resistance. There was like, I kind of divide the world in half. There are believers and there are naysayers. And so, yeah, there were plenty of naysayers that said, like, especially on Everest, I was going to draw everyone into a huge d disaster, a big rescue that I shouldn't be on the mountain, that I wouldn't be able to, I'd be helpless, all, all this stuff. I'd have to subject myself to horrendous risk, more risk than any other climber faces. I heard it all, but here's the thing though. Like I'd been climbing with these people and I started assembling my team and we were out climbing all the time together. So we really had a bond. And I remember doing this, the North face of Mount Baker mm. and you're tiptoeing across massive crevasses and climbing big 
60 degree ice faces and to the top and then rappelling back down and just, it was a 24 hour day. And my friend turned to me and he said, you deserve a shot on Everest more than most people. You'd be stronger than 90% of the people that go up to that mountain. Hmm. So the people that climbed with me, they were totally psyched. It was just the people that didn't know me and didn't know much about blindness. And they projected their own idea of blindness onto me, meaning like they were thinking, if I couldn't see, I can't imagine doing Mount Everest. So it must be the same for him. Or anyway, all their own beliefs about blindness kind of formed their opinion when they didn't realize, okay, but maybe even though he's blind, he maybe to counter that he has great fitness and endurance and he's built a really strong team and he's got his systems dialed and mm. uh they weren't seeing the other things that get you to the top they were just seeing the one thing which is the giant thing blindness and yeah. so yeah some so yeah I, I try not to hold a grudge uh but uh for a while i was a little irritated at some of those naysayers yeah, well, but now, especially now with the, your aim of being uh, kinder, uh, I guess forgiveness is also... Yeah, exactly. Of... <laughs> you like trying to let it go. Exactly. Yeah. Let, it, let it go. And I mean, you obviously proved proved them them wrong by making it. How was it? Like, how was that that moment? I think everyone who climbed Mount Everest remembers that moment being being on top of the world. How was it for you knowing that you've, you've done something that no one could have believed in and you became... Yeah, but by, by the time you were up there, you knew that you've broken through your barrier and probably yeah. giving inspiration to so many people. How was it feeling when you made it? You look, you have good days and bad days in the mountains, right? Like sometimes they, they actually, when you're on a rope team together, they call it hauling tuna. When you're really sick and feeling you're dehydrated and hungry and you're moving slowly, you're on a rope, you're connected to the rope with the, your teammates and they're hauling you. And sometimes you're hauling them. And so they call that, as I said, hauling tuna, which is really funny. And so on Aconcagua, a year and a half before Everest, I hadn't had such a good summit day. I had my, my left eye, I had glaucoma at the time, really bad glaucoma. And my, as I got to higher altitude, my eye felt like it was going to explode. And I wasn't able to sleep very well at altitude. And I was just having a hard time. And I got to the summit and I felt... Like I was just perceiving reality through a straw. People would say something to you and you'd go, wait a second, I have to process what they're saying. Mm -hmm. I just wasn't having a great day. But on Everest, I had a fantastic summit day. We left at nine o'clock at night and we summited about 10 in the morning. And I felt strong the whole day. And mm -hmm. standing on the top with my team, this 12 friends and eight Sherpas who had all believed in this project And it, it, we were the, we actually had a world record, which was the most people from one team to stand on the top of Everest in a single day. And that was really powerful. And my friends mm. told me afterwards that the reason they summited was because they wanted to be there to share that moment with me. So I feel in a way like I actually gave my team extra motivation. So we didn't have the epic disaster that those naysayers predicted. We actually mm. had one of the most successful climbs ever on the mountain and on the summit though there's a part of you where you let your guard down and you celebrate and you cheer and you cry and you hug each other 
but you have a long way down. Yeah. So you really can never let your guard down. It's not yeah. like you're sitting up there thinking about world peace and just all these beautiful ideas. You're really just thinking, oh my God, I got a long way down and I got to stay mm. focused. Every step counts. 90% of accidents happen on the way down. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. So getting down to base camp was really the true summit. Wow. And what I found very inspiring and like really cool part in your story is that like Everest as such, but especially Nepal as a country left a tremendous impression on you and like being in that country for such a long time, like you deeply connected with Nepal and the, and the Nepalese culture. How did that happen? Was it like a, mm. just like a natural thing that you felt drawn to the country that you also, that gave you also so much? Eventually, yes. But at first, I went to Nepal the first time in 2000, and we tried to climb a peak called Amada Blam, and we failed right. disastrously. And that was okay, because I think it, we learned a lot as a team, which helped us the next year. But I think my real connection to Nepal came when we were building our Sherpa team. Because when you're climbing the mountain, a lot of times you have these amazing local people called Sherpas that that do honestly the hardest work on the mountain. They're fixing the lines there. There are these massive crevasses and they'll lash four or five ladders together in this really tight and they'll lift, they'll put the ladders, those five ladders on the edge of a crevasse with a rope going to the top. And then they kind of lowered across like a drawbridge. Mm. And then one crazy ass Sherpa climbs, crawls across and anchors the other side. And they're constantly doing that because the icefall on Everest is just wildly dangerous. And there are seracs, big chunks of ice that are falling off and destroying the ladders and the pathways through. So they're constantly working through that. They call them the ice doctors. Mm. So anyway, when I was forming our Sherpa team, most of the Sherpas wouldn't sign on because they were superstitious. They thought a blind person on Everest might bring bad luck on the, on the village. It's kind of this, I think it's the double-edged sort of Buddhism. They say like this idea of karma, like if you're born blind, you're unlucky because you did something maybe bad in a past life to deserve it. So there's kind of that superstition. I think it was the same way when a woman stepped foot on a big, tall mountain like Everest, because women were seen as un impure and blind people also. So there was a little bit of resistance. Nobody would sign on. And this one guy on Pasang who had climbed the mountain twice before, and he probably had like a fifth grade education. And he said, I think we make our own karma. And he signed on. And then all the other Sherpas signed on and we had our Everest team. And when I was going towards the summit, I was standing on the South Summit with Ampasong. And I said, do I think I have enough oxygen to get across the knife edge and up the Hillary step to the summit and back? And he said, yes. And I knew that at that moment we were committed because that's where it really gets serious on Everest. And if I fell down and couldn't get up again, Ampasong was going to stick with me and hmm possibly be hurt or die and i thought how insane is this that this nepali with a fifth grade education is linking his faith 
to a blind man to climb Everest. That just blew my mind. And it made me realize, and all, all country, all people have goodness, but Nepal in particular, I just connected with it because even though it's got problems, it's got environmental problems, pollution, all kinds of challenges. It's a hopeful place. And mm. it, it's a place that makes you think about like possibilities, like what we can achieve, what our potential is as human beings. And so I just loved Nepal and I love the people. And now I am an ambassador for the Z Foundation, which goes in and does these incredible service projects all throughout Eastern Nepal. I adopted my son, Arjun, who's Nepali. He's an ethnic mm. group called Tamang. And I've been back probably 20 times climbing different mountains. Mm. And I feel like, yeah, I mean, I should learn Nepali a little bit better, but I really connect with the place as well as the mountains. Mm. It's such a wonderful outcome that you're a guest in a country climbing a really holy mountain and that you just don't return and never think about the country again. But like you really, something really grabbed you um, through that time, especially as you just said with your with Yeah, your in fact, I have a friend who's pretty deep and he said to me one time, he said, do you go to the mountains to climb or do you climb to go to the mountains? Now, I had to think about that for a long time. But what he was saying was like, are you using the mountains as your own personal resume or your own rock gem or just like your own way of like conquering the mountain or something like that? Or are you going to the mountains and, and learning all these skills so that you can, you can not only learn and grow as a human being, but you can maybe figure out a way to elevate the world around you? Yeah just really tapping into what you were just saying you founded an organization which is now pretty much 20 years old no barriers yeah. and which and now you can probably much better explain it in one sentence than i can but how i understand it, it is really a movement for anyone who's facing barriers and you support expeditions you support athletes climbers and all, all kinds of explorers that have barriers they're facing and that might be physical barriers that might be mental barriers and help them really break through that and there are just so many amazing expeditions that that you have funded but a bit back to the start like how did it come about and how did you find all that energy to say okay i'm gonna what i've just experienced more people need to be given that chance yeah well i really didn't connect and start no barriers to help people to climb mountains or anything. I mean, that turned out to me, my vehicle, my, the way I moved forward through life. What I really connected with when I started no barriers was this idea that so many people, whether they are, have a physical disability or whether they have emotional challenges, like you just mentioned, mentioned me mental challenges, uh, whether you're even a caregiver who takes care of somebody who's sick or injured or disabled you know we have so many barriers and these barriers shove you to the sidelines and i know what it was like to be shoved to the sidelines and feeling like i was in that prison as i mentioned and not knowing how to get out and so i really started no barriers to help people figure out how to get back into the world and live their best life and break through all those barriers that we have to come together as a community and to lift each other up 
to support each other. So really, I mean, when we have these expeditions, they're really like more transformative experiences to help people start thinking about what they can achieve, what they might pledge to accomplish in their lives, the dreams that they might have let go. And so we, in our, and some of our events, yeah, we'll have an adaptive climbing wall, but we'll also have kickboxing and taught by amputees and singing lessons taught by a deaf musician and wine tasting with a blind, with a blind sommelier. So we don't care what the vehicle is. Hmm. It could be anything to help people start to get back and think about what their potential is. And so it all started when I got a call from Mark Wellman, who was a hero of mine growing up, Mark was like amazing. He was like the, I, I mean, I don't want to be, I don't want to be mean to make him sound so old, but he was kind of the grandfather of disabled sports. He climbed El Capitan in the eighties as a paraplegic, hmm. no use of his body from his waist down. And he did 7,000 pull-ups up El Capitan in eight days to, wow. to do this historic climb. And he invited me on a climb, not of El Cap, but of a tower outside of Utah, or excuse me, outside of Moab, Utah. And he said, I'm going to have another guy with us. His name's Hugh Herr. Hugh Herr, turns out he was getting his PhD at MIT and he was a double leg amputee and he was a phenomenal climber. He climbed with these prosthetic legs and feet. And so the three of us climbed this beautiful tower together. And I thought like, God, like the feeling I have of connecting with these human beings and, and the connection is not necessarily our triumphs. It's more the barriers that we face, these challenges that we've overcome and what is the roadmap back to living. And I thought if we could teach the roadmap back to living fully, and, and you could sort of figure out how to do that consistently. What an amazing contribution that would be. So it really started out as more questions than answers, but eventually we've, we're slowly figuring it out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, slowly, I think it's really impressive what, what you and all the other guys have built and you have massive support and actually have huge gatherings as a worldwide movement. And I think that's really impressive and definitely something where you give back so much that a lot of people need. Yeah, we've and worked with thousands and thousands of people at this point. And at the end of the program, we have people take a pledge and it's really powerful. They've been things like, I'm going to write a book or run an ultra marathon or, or I'm going to get back on a horse again because mm. I lost my leg and I didn't think I could ever horseback ride again, or I going to start a business or start a nonprofit, or I'm going to volunteer mm. at my kid's school. I was, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to. Maybe it's just, I'm going to get out of my house and walk every night to start losing weight, or mm. I'm going to get, I'm going to, one of the pledges that one of the guys had was he's going to get off painkillers. And so he checked himself into rehab and he's uh, addiction free today. So the pledges that we see are just stunning and that's, they're wildly motivating for me. Yeah. I want to talk about one more, um, absolutely mind blowing adventure you've embarked on about, yeah, just a couple of years ago where actually a German newspaper, they wrote something along the lines of, uh, climbing the, uh, climbing Mount Everest is absolutely crazy. Then how crazy is it 
to kayak down Grand Canyon as a blind person. So they were apparently quite impressed with that, as I think a lot of people are. So you've decided at one point that, or you got really into kayaking <laughs> through, yeah. through friends. Yeah. And then you had this great friend, Rob, who he's another one of those people that I was referring to in the very beginning around partnership, who, and this is really anyone who's listening, you know, they should really read your book because I absolutely loved how you described sort of yours and Rob's relationship on how you shared that dream with him and he just took it on him to be like, okay, I'm going to you know, train you and I'm going to train me and we're going to figure out how to get you through the, probably the hardest rapids on earth, at, at least in, in the it. US. <laughs> so how did that come about and how can you, uh, and then I stopped my question, like, how can you have the confidence to go down a river blind? Because you obviously have no rope, no one guiding you. You just have to, you're a bit more on your own. Yeah, it would, Rob and I were up climbing this huge ice face in the Himalayas. And we were shivering and miserable. And he said, man, we should go do some boating. And I was like, he's like, because usually it's sunny. It's in warm climates. And you can bring all the food you want on the raft. And you can have campfires at nighttime and even drink some beer. And it's like really pleasant. And we were just miserable at the time because we were hungry. I think we just had a bowl of soup all day. Mm. And... So I said, let's do it. And so when we got back down that spring, I said, Rob, you want to teach me how to do a combat roll? Which is, and he sat in this cold lake in Colorado and he taught me how to do a combat roll, how to flip over and roll back up. And by the end of a couple hours, I had a couple shaky rolls. And, and then I said, hey, buddy, you want to guide me down like an easy river? And he said, of course. And so we just started training and figuring it out. And Rob had some time on his hands because he worked he had his own business. He's a professional photographer and filmmaker. And, and anyway, it just took off. We just learned everything together. And, and kayaking was terrifying. I have to say it was just absolutely terrifying sometimes to, to be at the top of a, a rapid and not being able to see it and just hearing this tumult, this maul of the rapid just roaring to the point where you, it engulfed everything, just that wild sound. Mm. Eventually we figured out how to use radios, these special radios. They didn't even exist on earth. We found this little tiny company that made these marine radios that were, where you could talk back and forth and it communicated in real time because most radios we found were, were like a half a second of delay. And that's an eternity getting my command in the, in a rapid where you have to make fast moves. Mm. So finding these radios really helped a lot. But they didn't always work. So that was a problem. Anyway, so yeah, over time, Rob and, and I, we built the team around us and we slowly progressed and started doing harder rivers. And I had guided some blind kids as a part of a no barriers expedition down the Grand Canyon, but we were rafting, of course, and we had professional guides and things like that. And one of the kayaking guides was this guy, Harlan Taney. And he was an amazing kayaker. And he said, if you ever... We want to come back to the Grand Canyon and learn how to kayak. I'll guide you down the river. So I reached out to Harlan and then he said, yeah, this is an amazing project. And we just took off from there. We started doing rivers all around the world. We did the uh, Usumacinta in, in, Me in Southern Mexico, which is like a giant river with going through the jungle with mm. Mayan ruins. And we went to Peru 
and did tons of rivers. And over time, I just built my skills. But no, kayaking was terrifying. It's a lot of fear management, just trying, because there's no breaks, you know, there's no, you can't say, okay, I got to slow down here and regroup. You're going at the river's pace. So mm. you're not always in control. And I have to say, I'm, I like to f figure out how to manage and control situations. And in the kayak, you're far from in control. <laughs> that was a really hard lesson in that way too. Did you have to some extent accept that you will hit rocks and accept that you will probably not be able to hit that right line just simply because you can't see it and that you just knew, okay, I, I will be in the water a lot and I, I need to just accept that I will get, you know. You got it. That's why it was so hard because I wanted to be perfect and kayaking, you're not perfect, you know, and you can hit something at any time. I remember just trying to get around a hole one time and I went too far to the left And I just bashed into this overhanging rock, just smashed my head right into this overhanging rock. It was upside down. I roll up, there's blood all over my face. It's just when you know that the consequences are so dire and so painful mm. and so scary, it's hard not to have a little defensiveness and almost like PTSD. But so the weird challenge is that it, you're not going to get through a rapid if you're defensive. So you have to be aggressive. You have to be offensive and then you have to make hard moves and get in position and then let the river take over. So it was a really hard recipe to learn. And I'm so glad that I climbed tons of mountains before I started kayaking because it was a step up in terms of just mindset and acceptance. Yeah. I think any, anyone who's ever been on a real river, because you were just describing this like sound of the of this current that suddenly is like a washing machine and you know you cannot get in there and just imagining that in your case being blind knowing there's just a, such a small chance that you're gonna hit that one line that might get you through this without bashing without getting turned yeah, over you're doing a lot of reacting and you're you're yeah. rolling a lot you're <laughs> flipping upside down and rolling a lot because you're hitting things sideways and and going through things backwards so you got to just, you got to be able to react really fast and well. And that scared me too, because I thought, oh, if I don't react, I might get into a dangerous situation. And now my friends are going to have to come over and get mm. me. And that's, and, and I'm putting their lives in danger as well as my own. So yeah, there was a lot of weight in my brain, um, you know, in the yeah. kayaking world when I got into that high level of kayaking. Yeah. Are you, are you still practicing it a lot? Not so much. I got back into climbing more. I've been really hitting ice climbing, a lot of ice climbing and rock climbing. This last summer, I was in Canada a bunch of times climbing big faces. And I started rock climbing when I was 16 as part of a group for mm. blind kids. It was a recreational group and they took us out to do different sports and they took us rock climbing. And they always say you, I've heard this, people say you return to the thing you started with. And so for me, I guess that's probably rock climbing. It's just, I just love being out there with friends, with all the social media and all the phones turned off and climbing together, putting your life in each other's hands and out kind of suffering together and accomplishing things together. It's just, it's so, so bonding and so 
beautiful and fun. So, so yeah, just lots of different things like that. Do you do a lot of these trips now purely out of pleasure and out of joy or how much of that is also now, you know, part of your profile that is, you know, that is your identity climbing that you get sponsorships that you write about articles mm -hmm. or even show up on, on TV shows and in movies. How much of that is, <laughs> you know, fun and how much of that is a job? That's 50-50. Like I went to Patagonia for the first time last January and mm. normally people sit around in, in a tent in, in Patagonia for months just with the wind hammering. But we got really lucky and we climbed two beautiful faces and we made a film that's touring right now that actually it's going to premiere at the Boulder International Film Festival. Mm. And I climbed a, a huge face called The Incredible Hulk with a friend and made a film called Soundscape that's crushing it at festivals around the world. So I made a film, I've made some no barriers films too, like mm. this beautiful woman, Melissa Simpson, who's part of our community at no barriers. She's got cerebral palsy and she wanted to climb a mountain. And so we got her this thing called a grit freedom chair. She sits in the chair and she cranks these levers with her arms that enable the thing to move. It's got wheels. And I formed a team of like 10 people and we climbed a mountain and she got to the summit. And it was just this beautiful experience. And we filmed that and made a beautiful film. So sometimes I think it's worth telling. And sometimes I say, I'm just going to be selfish. I want to go climbing. I don't want to <laughs> be thinking about like what I owe sponsors. And I just want to, I just want to selfishly go out and have a great adventure with my friends. Yeah. So, yeah. 50-50. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, 50-50, I think it's good, right? Uh, it seems like yeah. a decent mix. It would be... I think either way would be a struggle. If you just do it for pleasure, then obviously, you know, you need to find, you always need to find ways how to keep grinding. And if it's 70 or 80% just for sponsorship, then the joy goes away. And yeah. a bit back to what you said in the very beginning about Everest, you know, one of your strengths and the reason why people love to go out with you is because you like it so much. So I think it's a wonderful balance. And yeah, for sure. I love it. And I think that comes, I think that comes through. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, And yeah. I want to talk about one more of those movies because I think it was, it was just a, yeah, a, a great show to watch. I have to say that was with the National Geographic that you did, I think two years ago, right? Yeah. And you were actually alongside Will Smith, who, yeah, who's obviously an action hero. <laughs> He's placed yeah. the coolest guy on earth, right? Jumping through out of, I don't know, like he did everything. He's this cool action hero and you climbed with him up a, up and down a volcano and I just love that scene so much because you could like the fear in his eyes and he was not super comfortable with that so and then obviously you are sort of the anchor in in, in that as a blind person how was it when when you spent those weeks with him and obviously yeah you had your opinion about him prior and how was it then to really be in those situations with him yeah he was a cool guy we had a good time and hung out and just had fun he just became one of the one of my climbing partners while we were there for that week in Vanuatu. Mm. The impetus behind that show, Welcome to Earth, was that Will grew up in Philadelphia. He didn't get a chance to learn how to swim and learn how to camp and learn how to climb. Like I was really fortunate to be able to do that stuff. And he and so he played these action heroes in the big screen. But he did in in his real life he said I was pretty timid. And so he kind of created this concept of going around the world and studying these natural phenomena 
beautiful things that are happening on earth, like these incredible volcanoes and going down deep sea submersibles into the ocean and climbing through like these deep caves and the Dolomites, just doing all this crazy stuff. And with these experts, with these National Geographic explorers, and I was lucky enough to be picked. And so we climbed this volcano together and then we rappelled down into the volcano. Literally, we we're right above the shell, the, these lava lakes, these actual lakes of lava. And then you'd just be watching every 30 seconds or listening every 30 seconds, these giant cannon blasts of, uh, of magma being shot out of these vents a half a mile into the sky. I mean, we're talking like a truck-sized magma bomb, and it would explode back into the lava lakes. And then the lava lakes would reverberate and smash up against the walls of the caldera. Like, honestly, like it sounded like the waves of an ocean. It was just so stunning. And so, and we set up this scientific equipment. We had a volcanologist with us and it was to study the, the sound waves of the volcano, which are massive. Human ear can't even detect them. And the idea was like, can you predict eruptions and maybe save lives around the world? So there was kind mm -hmm. of a cool little elevating message and exploration that we were doing together. And, but the best part was just standing on the rim at the end of the day with Will and just listening to the fireworks. It was like, if you've been to Disney World or something, that fireworks, but on steroids, just the most amazing audio show for a blind person you could ever imagine. And, and so, and yeah, we connected heat, in that right? way. I mean, you really feel the heat as well. So you I guess you feel the heat on your face. You're in protective gear and protective glasses and respirators and all the stuff. Um, but at the same time, you're experiencing something that like most people will never get to experience. It was really cool. And then, and then, yeah. And then the afterwards, Will kind of, he, he kind of screwed up, but Hey, we all screw up a little bit. Right. But he was kind to me. He didn't slap me off the side of the volcano or anything. <laughs> what do you mean? He screwed up. He slapped Chris Rock oh, this on, a, one. on a TV uh, show. This yeah. One, he yeah. kind of. And then, hey, look, I mean, we're all works in progress, right? Like he had a tough childhood and he's trying to, just like all of us, even though he's on the big screen, he's still trying to work out his shit like the rest of us are. So, so yeah, I like Will and I think he's a good guy. Yeah. I mean, he's also on the, on the path of more kindness, maybe. Big time. Yeah. No, he hundred percent is. And, and yeah, he's got a complicated life. Yeah. But I really think he loved actually being a part of these big real adventures where mm -hmm. you could actually be like a real life superhero. Yeah. No, I, I think it also really comes across when you watch a show that it's, it is fascinating. And I think everyone who's watching it is absolutely jealous of anyone in that show because it looks fascinating. You've mentioned it, volcanoes and deep sea and dolomites and a lot of really great places to explore on this planet. Yeah, we're really, we have an amazing planet and there's lots to explore. People sometimes say to me, I, I always laugh because they're like, so, wow, that's really cool. You climbed all the mountains now. What are, what are you going to do next? And I'm like, no, I've climbed about 0.00001% of the mountains on earth. <laughs> There's a lot to do. And I'm going to run out of cartilage in my knees before I run out of things to do. So at 55, I'm like, whew, what do I, what can I do? What can I focus on that will be important to me in the good years I have left? Yeah. 
Eric, thank you so much for your time. Before, before we wrap up, I have two questions I would like to ask you. And that is, if you have an inspiration and if you have a person where you say, okay, that is, that has been somewhat of a either guiding star throughout your life. And you've already mentioned a few or more of a recent inspiration that keeps you going. Do you have someone like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and I hate to stereotype and say the actual, the answer that everyone would say, but I mean, for sure, it's my dad. He passed uh, a year and a half ago at 81. He was too young, but he was, he was the captain of this football team at Princeton and he was in, he, he went to Vietnam and he flew 120 missions in his A4 Skyhawk. And he was a real patriot and, and he taught me a lot about no barriers before, before the phrase formally existed in our organization. Like, I'll tell you this quick story where I was a kid and I used to, I was going blind, but I still loved to take this old mountain bike and race down my driveway, which is a steep driveway. And I built these ramps at the bottom of the driveway and I'd fly over this wooden ramp and I'd fly through the air and I'd land on this, on my back tire on this, on this big plyboard ramp that I built. And there was a day where I couldn't see the ramps anymore. Like my eyes had gotten so bad, just the wood ramp blended in with the asphalt and I couldn't see it. And I would go off the side of the ramp and I fell over and I had some blood and I rolled my bike up to the garage. It was just so crushed, you know, like my days of biking are over. And my dad was painting a piece of furniture in the garage and I didn't even hardly notice him because I was so upset. And he, the next morning he said, come on down and try it again. And I thought, okay, you know, my kid brain, I didn't know. I was like, maybe my, I'll get a little bit of sight back today or something. And I came around the corner and the, I could see the ramps because my dad had painted them a bright orange. Sorry, I'm going to cry, but, um, uh, I could see him. And because the, the bright mm. orange contrasted the pavement below and I jumped over them and I actually got my confidence back and my two brothers and my dad actually laid between the two ramps so I could jump over them like evil can evil. And, uh, so my dad was just, he just was a can do kind of guy breaking through barriers and helping me to figure out how to break through barriers, um, from, from such an early age. And I tribute most of that attitude to, to my dad's, uh, um, mentoring. Well, thank you for sharing that story. That is, I think is exactly what you would want a good dad to do, right? Does just helping you help yourself in a way. Yeah. And I felt like my dad and his A4 Skyhawk riding around on that bike after that. And just, and I could only ride for another six more months until I went totally blind. But my dad could have easily said no more bikes, just not yeah. in the cards. Instead, he figured out a, how to break through a barrier and, and let me pass through that door. Oh. And so I just have respected people in my life, like Rob, you mentioned my kayaking friend in Harlan, these guys who open doors instead of closing doors in your face. Yeah. A bit also to what you mentioned in the very beginning that sometimes people don't know how to behave around you. And I think that is one of those very great answers on if anyone gets to that situation, it's just really open these, as you said, open these doors and give help that 
you know, you can jump over ramps and you can kayak down rivers instead of saying, well, you can't do this, you know, it's too dangerous or you need to do this and that. And I think that's a super powerful message. Yeah. I mean, and, and all around the world now, companies and, and communities are starting to think about accessibility, inclusive thinking, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. These are kind of become buzzwords, but all they really mean when it comes down to it is just open the freaking door and let people pass through it and then mm. see if you can sort of paint the ramp and figure out a way for them to fly. And mm. it's as simple as that. It's you either believe in people's potential or you don't. Yeah. Well, that's so great to hear that, that you had so many people in your life that always believed in you. And I think that's really wonderful and surely a blessing that you had so many people trying to open doors for you and, and helping you. So that's for so sure. great to hear. The last question I have, and that is less of a philosophical one and maybe a bit more of a practical one <laughs> that I like to ask, that I like to ask anyone. However, sometimes it takes an unsuspected turn, but if you had one item or one thing that you always bring or that you always want to have when you go out on, for example, a climb, or maybe something that has been surprisingly useful anything like that, what would that be? Well, I hate to get all deep and dark, but I mean, I've had so many people in my life pass away. My mom died when I was right after I went blind in a car accident. So when I'm climbing sometimes, and I'm not sure how I feel about faith and things like that, but it's comforting to maybe feel like my mom's spirit or something's there, you know, kind of there's something in the universe that hitting me. I mean, I'm not sure if I believe that, but it's a thought, you know, when I'm climbing mm. a lot of times and I turn back on a face and I'm really disappointed. Maybe in, in my mind, I say, well, maybe that's my mom, like keeping me safe today. Maybe that's like, if I'd gone up there, something could have happened. And mm. so anyway, I know this is like something in my mind, but it's something that comforts me when I'm up in the high mountains or on a scary river and I'm feeling vulnerable, just having the idea of that spirit, that something watching over you and, and saying, there's something good that's down the river. It's not all darkness and destruction and fear. There's something beautiful and worthy at the end of the road here. I think there was a one wonderful answer. <laughs> really, I had a, I, I asked this questions, yeah. uh, question to everyone. And as I said, maybe there are, some of them take surprising turns and some of them say knives, jackets, water bottles, uh, <laughs> that's fine. Well, I almost but, said goobers, which are chocolate covered peanuts. And then I decided I go for my <laughs> other answer. Well, snacks. No, but there's actually more people than, than maybe we think that really want to bring something, um, intangible, right? A, yeah, just, just a strength or a little, you know, a little teddy bear or, or, or just something that reminds them. So essentially something to refocus their mind or to give them mental strength. And I think that is just, yeah, the more people I speak to, the more people say something that hints towards mental strengths and actually physical usability. And I think there's right. some truth in that. Yeah. Thank you so, so much for the time. My and pleasure. I and I just, had a blast yeah. talking to you. 
And I do feel like it's what we talked about in the beginning. Like if we, you and I met in person, I'd give you a fat hug and we'd have a connection for life. You yeah. Know? That was Eric who told an absolutely unbelievable story of how he gets to experience the world in a completely different way and how he realized that one of his challenges and his obstacles might be one of his biggest assets. And I think that's a wonderful message and something to take so much inspiration out of. And I really enjoyed this conversation with Eric and I'm truly thankful that he took the time and I appreciate how open he was to share with so many of us what it feels like when a tragedy or what seems like a tragedy hit and how he flipped it around and made something tremendous out of it. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to know more about the World Explorers Collective and the fund we are currently giving out, where you can get funding for your expedition and high-end gear such as tents, backpacks, merino wool clothing, then visit worldexplorerscollective.com and see where you can apply. And if you enjoy the show, then please take a few seconds and give some stars or thumbs up or review. It means the absolute world to us. Thank you so much for listening and I hope I see you next time.